Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's a great football team with a lot of moral fiber and a lot of character, and they showed it. Shout, a Buffalo football podcast hosted by Matt Perino and Ryan Talbot. No place else you'd rather be than right here, right now. When it's too tough for them, it's just right. Presented by Syracuse.com and NYUP.com. The Bills make me wanna. What is up, everyone? It is Thursday night, a little bit different than our usual Wednesday night show, but I thought, you know, we had the, the Monday night show or Sunday night show, and then we had the Tuesday night show, and there was just like a lot of us early in the week, so I thought, let's space it out a little bit. We'll come back Thursday. This is the Shout Buffalo Bills football podcast. He is my co-host, Ryan Talbot, and at the bottom, the man, Tim Graham. How are you, my friend? Doing good, boys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you're welcome, and you know I feel like it's been way too long since me, you, and a couple other buddies were sitting in a hotel room, eating some gas station food, some bad pizza, drinking a couple beers. This COVID world's got us uh, missing a lot of things. This would have been a weekend where that was revived, right? Um, Oh, yeah. It would have been in New Jersey. Everybody would have been there because it's such a close trip. Uh, Falls within everybody's budgets. Although... Last year, didn't everybody kind of scatter around a little bit because we had some people that wanted to be in the city and some people. I, I prefer being out at the Newark Airport, which is as glamorous as it seems. But the Marriott out there is actually impre- it's a great hotel. It's got everything you need, but nobody ever wants to stay. The idea of staying in Newark is uh, unappealing to most. So I have to usually do some pitching to get uh, people to want to stay out there. And you're right by the airport. So. I, I agree. I went into the city for family purposes. I feel like that's right. That's sometimes you kind of get pulled in those directions, but you know, we had plenty of, of good times. We got, we got our buddy Ryan out on the road in Houston last year. That was, that was a great time. Ryan, yes, how are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. That was always my... good to see you, Ryan. Yeah. Good to see you too. Doesn't All happen right. as often as it should in person. No, I, I'm not talking about this. I'm just saying in person. No, I agree. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that when I first started this, uh, Tim was more than gracious with with his time with me. Uh, he, he would answer any questions that I had. He was quick to give me his phone number so I could contact him. So, you know, a, a lot of this journey, I, I can honestly say, has to do with uh, a lot of your advice. And I, I couldn't thank you enough. If it's working out for you, then you're welcome. 
<laughs> if it's if it's not, then I'm sorry. Um, I think it's working out well. I'm because I enjoy your work. Well, thank you. It's funny because I feel like a lot of us guys and gals in the in the market, uh, we we owe a lot of things to you and your graciousness over the years because you know, and I want to ask you about that too, because that's something that it's not like that everywhere. And what's like the 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 closeness that exists, you know, in, in on this beat and in this market. You know, you've always been somebody that's, you know, went out of your way to help, you know, young journalists and young writers. And why has that always been important to you? Because it seems like it's always been important to you. It has. Um, and I don't think we've ever had this discussion. Maybe we have because but if if not, then really cool of you to pick up on that. Um, there are some people on the beat who would be laughing at this notion that I'm always trying to make sure everybody's getting along. <laughs> Uh, there are a handful that I could care less if they like me or not and uh, tough toenails. But um, when I was in Miami, when I went down, see, now I guess I'll take it a step back. Covering the Sabres and being the main beat writer in a one-paper town uh, and traveling as much as I did with Paul Hamilton, who I guess was my main competition, even though we were in totally different mediums, and especially at that time because – Working for the radio station didn't mean that you also blogged and working for the Buffalo News didn't mean that I automatically had a radio show, which I didn't. Uh, but now you do one, you kind of do everything. So Paul and I were not competitors, really. Mm -hmm. um, and there was just a camaraderie with all the guys, with um, with Rick Jenneret and Jim Lorenz and Danny Gare and, and Paul and, uh, and John Waro, uh, you know, was another print guy. And Bill Hoppy and uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, Kevin Aklubja when he was in Rochester and we just all got along. We had a good time and yes, we competed, but I mean, not, not tooth and nail, not to the point where we wanted to, to harm the other person professionally. And uh, when I made the switch to cover the NFL and I went down to South Florida, it was cutthroat and I did not enjoy that at all. Mm. And um you know, I, I consider some of the people down there very dear friends, but others, it was just like, man, I lighten up, um, get making it personal. And uh, I just didn't I didn't have an appetite for it. And so when I took the job at ESPN covering the AFC East uh, and stopped being really competing with the Dolphins writers, and it was so liberating to me to be able, I do a morning links thing where I'd link to everybody's work and give everybody credit. And, you know, when there was this, this mentality of nobody could even acknowledge the other, your competitors work, um, because if they beat you on a story, it was almost like you were acknowledging your own failure or something. Mm -hmm. It was just really, I didn't like it. And so when I came back to Buffalo, and I started working at the Buffalo News again. I just said, I'm going to make sure we all get along here. And I really took time and care to say, you know, and I think that I my deepest connections are with guys from when I first returned to the Buffalo News. And it was like, let's all get along here to the point where we talk about our stories, even before they run. Um, we don't have this fear that we're going to get stabbed in the back. Um, we can actually bounce ideas off of each other. And to me, that makes your work better. Um, 
sharing contacts, you know, sharing the occasional phone number. What's the great sin? Yeah, everybody's supposed to protect their phone list. But I mean, come on, if somebody always needed a phone number, I'd give them the phone number of, of a former player or a coach or something. And um, I don't know. Yeah, that. Uh, thank you for saying that, because that's always been a big, big thing for me is that we get along. We respect each other's work. We can compete and still be friends. And um, it makes the job a lot more fun. It makes it you know, we don't dread walking in that door every day to be to the media room and just be like, Jesus, I mean, here's these guys again. I hate these guys. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of the that was the mood down in, in South Florida. Well, thank you, because I think things like that, you know, it's been passed on to the next generation. Like, I feel like that's what's happened you know, in large part because of that mentality of guys that, you know, were here before a lot of us, I feel like that's bled into a lot of the relationships that have been built here. And I've only been back, this is my third year now back on the beat. And I tell people all the time, one of the most enjoyable things is whether it be on the road or in the media room, when we, when we can be in the media room again someday is, you know, those relationships and, and being, cause you know, well, you know, you have Joe B and Matt Fairburn, who, you know, obviously have been both guests on the show and uh, do a great job over on the Buffalo Beat at the Athletics. So you have that kind of camaraderie. But, you know, depending on what day you're there, you know, Joe was there today. Matt could be there a different day. Like you're not always around these guys every single day. So to have that kind of camaraderie, that's something that I certainly do enjoy. And we do. I mean, without naming names, people will beg us to name names, but there are people within their own outlets who don't get along. Um, mm. You know, it's just kind of, and you'd hear about it. You know, one of them shows up one day at the, at the facility and you hear him ripping the guy that he works with. And it's <laughs> like, all right, well, I mean, that's the way you have it. I mean, that's the way, but I mean, let's just all get along here and have, have fun. So that way we're not, uh, you know, with sports, I mean, we're covering sports. We shouldn't walk into the facility or the press box thinking, Jesus Christ, What's going to happen today? Or who am I going to have to avoid today? Who am I going to have to keep an eye out so that way I don't have to get coffee at the same time as them? And that was kind of the way it was down there in the in the Dolphins press box. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bad dynamic to be in. So I'm glad we all get along, or most of us do anyway. Yeah. Speaking about getting along, we're going to talk about somebody who's, you know, year got kind of thrown off tilt a little bit. But before we do, quick word from our sponsor. Ready for football? Tops is with ready-to-serve fan favorites everyone will cheer for. Delicious family or party packs like pizza, sliders, fried chicken, barbecue, or beef on whack. Starting at only $4 per serving. Perfect for game day and any day. Only at Tops. I'm so glad that you're on this week, and I'm so glad that you can make this happen this week because this is the guy we're going to talk about now, somebody that you've covered you know, in Buffalo. Uh, obviously, he has been all around the AFC East, a division Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, when you saw what happened and you, you saw some of the remarks that came out of uh, Miami this week, you know, Fitzpatrick's re reaction to it, you know, even though he knew this was coming, I mean, for somebody that's been covering him, what, what was going through your head? Uh, I was, I found it a bit off putting and I know that uh, everybody loves Fitz. Uh, the media love him because he's so accessible. He does wear his heart on his sleeve. Uh, he's not, he doesn't talk ill of anyone. Um, his, um, you know, it's that way with his teammates. It's that way, you know, everybody loves Fitz. Uh, but one of the things about, about him that is, 
that every, every one of his great character traits is that, and one of the reasons why the Bills were looking into him, bringing him back when they drafted Josh Allen and when they were looking at a guy like Josh McCown and they ended up you know, not being able to pull that off. But this is a guy that when it's his time to step aside, he is going to be a team player and he's going to be there to be a, a extra coach for this young quarterback. I didn't see that with his comments uh, on on Wednesday. I saw a guy who was laying it on a little thick that mm-hmm. this was his team and he how that he was look he was playing the sympathy card. He was milking it. And, and all right, let me take a step back. I don't want to say milking it because that makes it seems like it was disingenuous. But at some point, this happened. This uh, he talked with the media, what twenty four hours or even what was it forty eight hours after the announcement was made. He had time to stop and say, "Okay, now it's time for me to be the team guy, say all the right things," and he didn't. I don't. I don't think. And yes, you could say it's what you want to hear from a quarterback. Yes, us in the media, it was great to hear him talk like that. It was mm-hmm. you want a guy to be honest, but it didn't follow the script. I don't think of what uh, you were, what you wanted out of Ryan Fitzpatrick um, in this role as mentor to your young quarterback coming in. Now that's not to say that he's trying to sabotage Tua. I don't think this is a Rob Johnson, Doug Flutie situation or a JP Lossman, Trent Edwards situation, but I think that I was just surprised to see him kind of feel like he was like grabbing a hold of, uh, of the ankle uh, of his job and refusing to let go um, when it was time to graciously step aside and let Tua Tagovailoa take over. Could it been? Could it be something to do with the fact that he was playing so well? Uh, the fact that there's some openings around the league in terms of uncertainty. Do, do you think maybe he's saying these things just to kind of say, "Hey, you know, th- there's other jobs that are kind of in flux right now, and if you if I can't have this job." Maybe maybe you guys should try to move me elsewhere or try to release me. Or is that just not in his uh, MO or is that not in his DNA? Well, it's hard to say because I thought the comments yesterday weren't really in his DNA. So maybe, Ryan, I think that could be. Uh, the way I see it, though, I just, I mean, if this is too simplistic, maybe. Um, that's a nuanced take on it. Uh, but the simple answer to me is he's going to be 38 next month. He probably viewed this as his last hurrah, that this is his team and things were going so well, well enough that he deserved to remain the quarterback and that this was his team. He made mention of you know the, the investment and how he really felt this was his team for the first time since Buffalo, um, that maybe he felt this was going to be a good way to go out, uh, whether it be retirement at the end of the season or even, okay, now it's time for me to be that backup that holds the clipboard as the extra coach. And, and, and now we see Tua go on in 2021 and and be the franchise quarterback from here. And maybe he felt like the rug was pulled out from under him in the sense of, you know, this was, this was my chance to at least end it on my terms. Now I don't, I'm not having it end on my, it's ending on somebody else's terms. Um, But yeah, maybe we do see him get moved. I don't know what team really wants to bring him in at the deadline, have him pick up a system. You know, maybe there's a team out there that has a situation uh, where they have a veteran quarterback and they just want to make sure that they have that um, safety net, um, something like that. But uh, my guess is that 
the Dolphins keep him uh, because I think he is really that guy that I think that we really believe he, maybe it's going to take him some time to get over this, but I think he adds so much value to that quarterback room and for Tua Tagovailoa's development that I, that the Dolphins are counting on um, that, that he sticks around. Um, speaking of a young quarterback's development, let's switch gears a little bit. Talk a little Josh Allen. Uh, you put out a piece this week uh, diving into you know his last two weeks, and obviously we that's been a big topic this week, although I feel like his struggles over the last two weeks have kind of been overshadowed with how dramatically bad the defense has been um, over you know this season, but really this last game. And you know, I know they, they gave up 26 points, and I even spoke a lot about it the last couple of days that I think, that was the design, and I think your offense has to step up and score a little bit more points. But what have been your, you know, six weeks Josh Allen twenty twenty experience? What are your thoughts there? Uh, I'm uh, some trepidation. I do think that defenses are playing him differently now. They are forcing him to think a lot more. Um, maybe they were playing him a little bit too straight up. Uh, through the first few weeks or, you know, the fact that the competition uh, wasn't as good, uh, perhaps, uh, although, you know, Miami has shown itself to be a legit team. They beat the Rams, which is le- which are a legit team, uh, the Raiders. So, um, I, you know, we're not talking about dummies uh, overseeing those defenses on those teams. You know, the Jets are junior varsity, but uh, but I whether Mike Vrabel and Andy Reid were overseeing some uh, defenses, obviously Steve Spagnuolo with the Chiefs, it's not Andy Reid's defense, but um, I think they're making him think and they're taking away his, uh, the home run shot and they're forcing the Bills to go ahead and run it. And if you can't, then we're going to make you piece together a 13-play drive and somewhere along those 13 to 15 plays that it's going to take you to move down the field, we bet you're going to make a mistake. Uh, whether it be uh, a turnover or just not being able to convert that third down. So uh, I think John Brown's absence is hurt. Um, obviously, a lot of people look at what Stefan Diggs has done and Cole Beasley's been a productive player. Uh, and so people, mess- I think they forget that John Brown is still an important part of this offense and him not being out there at at full speed has really been a, a problem. So yeah, I, it's been a mixed bag for Josh Allen. The, the highs have been sensational. Uh, but, yeah, the last two weeks you want to see more from him against these good teams because as a Bills fan you want to think that you can compete with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bills fans were shown they're not ready yet. They're just not there yet. And hopefully the, the evolution continues this season uh, to where we're not even thinking about September when we get towards the holidays. And uh, it's a it's a team that's that we've learned a lot more about there. Are, you know, Bill Belichick, one of his things that he likes to say is you really don't know what your team's made of until November. Uh, so maybe we'll see him bounce back and we'll, we'll learn a lot more uh, a month from now. We'll have a probably totally different take than we do today on Josh Allen. Is he too impatient in terms of he wants to stretch the field? He wants to hit that big play. Uh, he he said that in that Titans game, that was part of his second interception. He was try, he was getting greedy uh, against the Chiefs. Maybe the weather played a factor, but he was still trying to stretch the field a little bit. And it seems like those two defenses were taking that specific aspect of the game away. You can dink and dunk on us. You can get those yards. And like you said, 
we think you're going to make a mistake somewhere along the way on these 13 play drives. So is it something where he just doesn't want to take what's given to him all the time and that's causing some of these problems over the last two weeks or just maybe something completely different? Yeah, I think there's definitely some of that. And uh, uh, he's, he's a daredevil. He likes to, he likes those plays. They're fun. Um, they get him going. They get his guys going. I mean, you see the smile on his face. Uh, you don't really see him beaming uh, after he's, you know, thrown to Cole Beasley for a pickup of seven. Uh, but when he can dial up Stefan Diggs or, you know, Cole Beasley on a, on that third and 12 or third and 15 or whatever that was uh, that they converted a, a couple of weeks back. Uh, yeah, you see it. Like he loves those plays, whether he's running it or throwing it. Uh, so, yeah, that temptation's always there. And um, that's something that he's just going to have to get out of the habit of. And uh, if it means taking the five yard gain on a regular basis, and he's talking about it all the time. I got to take what the defense gives me. I got to take what the defense gives me. Um, he always has accountability for himself, but I, I sense at some point fairly soon, if he keeps saying that on Sunday afternoons uh, in the locker room, or on Mondays or Wednesdays or whenever he has his follow-ups uh, with the, with reporters, fans are going to get sick of it, just like mm -hmm. they got sick of the Buffalo Sabres players saying it after every game. Well, you know what? You're right. The leaders are saying the right things. The accountability, the buck stops with me. Uh, I, it's up to me to fix it. It's up to me to fix it. And that sounds great. And you're like, oh, yes, that's what I want out of my quarterback. He's taken – but if he keeps saying it, if he's saying it five weeks out of eight – uh, or even every other week. Then after a while, you're like, well, then do something about it. You know, so change. And so you're going to need to see Josh Allen of those first four weeks, um, I think, a lot more than the Josh Allen we've seen the last two weeks because those words, and even after the wins, he says these types of things. Ah, you know, I can't, I can't be foolish there. I got to do better. I got to do better. Well, at some point, people are going to lose their patience and say, okay, you, so you know, you, you know what you need to do. Why aren't you doing it? Um, Josh, the, the, th the thing about these last two weeks that have been a bit alarming for me is that I thought that what we saw in the first four weeks was the evolution of the approach, in, even in the big games against good opponents. And I felt like we were going to see less in these big spots deer in the headlights and and in some of the early game struggles that I, that was one of the things that impressed me the most about the first four games was how he came out aggressive, determined, and really on task with what he wanted to do. Execute ex execution was at a really high level. And then you get to the Tennessee game, obviously the mistake early. Uh, I don't really put that so much on him. Obviously, it bounced off John Brown in it. But the set, the the way he responded against Kansas City was, you know, the the errant passes. It almost takes you back to his rookie season a little bit. The thing about Josh too is when you when you mention phrases like uh, the moment being too big or the thing that really is counterintuitive to that line of thinking. I'm not saying that it's incorrect, but the real the anomaly is. His ability to shake off what's going poorly and lead a late charge in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he turns into a different guy between the years. Um, and I think that that is an incredible trait to have. Super admirable and hell. I mean, every player wishes he had it. 
The problem with the last two weeks, though, is they they haven't been one score games. So you're talking about that deer in the headlights. Well, you're down two scores. You get down three scores. Well, then it's, you know, there's no there's no 14 point play you can dial up. Uh, so as long as he's within one score, I think he's there's a certain vibe that he plays with. Um, and he let himself get out of it uh, against the Rams, especially the Rams got back in the game. Uh, you know, the, the penalty that Josh Allen took the 15 yard penalty while arguing with the with the official um, on top of the fumble, on top of this, on top of that, it looked like he was melting down. And then all of a sudden he comes out for that drive and it was totally different guy. He was, he was just, everything was gone. Everything hit, hit the reset button. We're marching down the field. And it got to the point where I was stunned when that ball fell incomplete before the, the DPI was called uh, when they didn't get in the end zone. I was like, I thought for sure they were going to win this game. And sure enough, the flag comes out and they do win the game. Uh, Tyler Croft of all people with his second touchdown. But yeah, I think it's when he gets down by multiple scores that you see the mental you know, the, the, the synopsis stop firing the right way, or, and I think this maybe lends compounds it, uh, who the quarterback is on the other side. I think that there's a, he seems to press when there's a really good quarterback uh, on the other side, like he's in a, he needs to perform. Um, and, uh, you know, his record, I, I went back and looked his record against, against really good quarterbacks. Isn't that great? I want to, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he's eight and 12 against quarterbacks who have, uh, gone to a Pro Bowl or been selected to a Pro Bowl, and he's now one in six, I think, against quarterbacks who've won a Super Bowl with his mm -hmm. only win coming against Eli Manning last year. And Eli Manning wasn't Eli Manning. Well, was was he ever Eli Manning? You know, that's a discussion for a different day, <laughs> and a different audience probably. But Eli Manning's swan song, he was able, the Bills were able to win that game. But, anyways, yeah, I think there's some things that go on with Josh Allen when it comes to pressing too much. But I mean, I keep going back to it. He is so good when down one score in the fourth. And it's it's uh, that's the thing that I think captures everybody's imagination. And the most eyes that were ever on him in his in his career was in Dallas last year, and he lit it up. So you know, it might always be like a conundrum. But speaking of one more thing, and I want to get you out of here. I don't want to keep you too long. We could probably do this all night. But that's Cam true. Newton. I'm a bit long-winded. <laughs> Cam Newton and the Patriots. So we're talking so much about Josh Allen and the things that have happened the last two weeks. Well, Cam Newton and the New England Patriots are, you know, a bottom tier, you know, bottom seven, eight passing offense in the NFL. They've looked pretty bad the last couple of weeks. Cam Newton said today in New England, I was following some of their media, what came out of there. And he basically said the ex excuse bank is running low. He's put it on himself. He said he's not really doing anything well. Where, where do you feel like things sit in the AFC East right now? Because, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, if you're starting to look at this thing from a national perspective inside the division, it's like, oh man, they are they are prime for the taking here. I mean, the four and two Bills, when they've looked really good, they've looked really good, and the Patriots' offense seems. But I kind of just sit there back and thinking, you know, it's Bill Belichick, Cam Newton, still kind of getting used to all of this in New England. I mean, he had no preseason. That's my daughter, by the way. You'll hear them in the background at times. They're they're messing around. Are the Patriots the way it's supposed to be? Yeah, I know it's COVID. Are the Patriots in trouble here, or do we not really know yet? They seem to be in trouble, but I can't tell you the number of times I've said, man, sure looks like the end for Tom Brady. And this is going back five years. 
so no, I don't think you could ever count them out. I think that the way uh, you know, Bill Belichick and his coaching staff, um, they work magic and they just see things in a totally different way than, uh, than other coaching staffs do. I think that keeps them on a level on a near level playing field in and of itself. And then Cam Newton, I think is, has turned out to be better than a lot of people thought he would and is, uh, causing a lot of people to regret not signing him, uh, especially when he was out there forever, uh, and took uh, a very team friendly deal. Um, but the way, I mean, I think to bring this conversation full circle, what's happening in Miami is fascinating. I've said it even since late last year, going back to say November, I thought that they were a sneaky, uh, they, they are better than a lot of people thought. Cause I think a lot of people were remembering the team that at the beginning of 2019, you were, they were the, the team, there's a team every year that everybody says, could Alabama beat them? Could the Crimson Tide beat whoever the worst team in the NFL is? And the Dolphins were that team for a month and a half. And then all of a sudden they started to get really competitive, not just a little competitive, but like Brian Flores is doing some stuff. Uh, and then here they are just one game out of first place heading into their bye. The Bills are showing a little bit of instability. I think that the Dolphins are making this switch. There's no inside knowledge. I think they're making this switch because they're close. And they think that they have a better shot to make a run at this with Tua than they do with uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Um, and uh, so I think the Dolphins are a live underdog in this uh, in this division. It's not just because the Bills are up by a game, but I think the Bills are the best team in the division. Uh, and they're in the driver's seat. But I think watch out for Miami. And then again, you can never count out the, the Patriots this early. Um, so I think it's still very much a three-team race. Very good. All right, let's run through a couple things here before you go. He is Tim Graham of The Athletic. The reboot of the Tim Graham show, now named, which is awesome. It's it's so you. It, this title is amazing. TG, I didn't come up with it. You didn't? No. Oh, who came up with it? TGAF. Uh, Jonah Bronstein did. Of course. Stands for Tim Graham and Friends. It could stand for a number of things, uh, which I it, it's kind of captures the attitude of the show. There's an irreverence there. And um, yeah, TGAF. And um, yeah, it's 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 podcast slash YouTube. It's similar to this, but not nearly as fancy. I mean, the graphics you guys have here, you got you got uh, outsource ads that are being produced outside and brought in and it's this is impressive. I hope to attain this someday. Oh, you will. You will. It's it this started at very humble beginnings and it's been a constant tinkering. Uh and, and we still it's have nasty, a long way to go. Man. Yeah, uh, we like it and we like uh the the coolest thing is I get to see what everybody's saying in real time. So when I say something really stupid, they tell me you are really <laughs> stupid. And that to me is the kind of relationship I I see. I apologize, though. I think I was supposed to wear headphones, and uh, I think I maybe created an echo situation here because my microphone is right. So, anyways, see, that's, yeah, that's me. Okay. I'm learning production. I don't know how to do this. I'm learning. So, just be patient with me. Also, Tim Graham, uh, award winner, PFWA, uh, Visser Enterprise News Features Contest, first place winner for a story. What can be done to bolster the pipeline of minority coaches on offense? Uh, it, it was a great read in the athletic. Was it this year? Earlier this Thanks, year? Matt. 
That was uh, last year. Late last year. Ran. Okay. So, yeah, the awards go from Super Bowl to Super Bowl. So they're just now announcing. Yeah, it's so yeah, it's it, that story ran a long time ago. Okay. And I'll, when we got Josh Reed on Facebook in the comments telling me that he thinks I'm smart, uh, our fearless leader over at News for uh, Buffalo, uh, Buffalo Kickoff Live. Thank he you, has Josh. nothing better to do than this. Uh, you know, <laughs> he wants he, to see if we were going to talk trash about him. That's true. And he's probably feeding the baby or burping the baby. You know, it's dad duty. We, we, we were there. Days. Yeah, that's what he's going. Tim Graham, thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Take care. All right. Wow. So let's transition a little bit here. We got a lot of stuff going on today. A lot of stuff going on. So that was our first portion of the podcast. We were going to have John Anik, uh, lead UFC announcer on the show. Huge Patriots fan. Guy that's just been in the business a long time. He covered the NFL for a little bit at ESPN. Went on to you know become the UFC's lead commentator where he is just the bomb and the best to ever do it in my opinion. Uh, we were going to have him on live, but he is in Abu Dhabi right now because there's a big fight on Saturday and he's going to be sleeping right now when the show was going to be live uh, because they're eight hours ahead. So we taped an interview this afternoon with John. We talked about a bunch of things. I'm going to show you a little clip here. It's a little bit of a teaser. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go to the audio version, go to subscribe, rate, and review. You know the drill, but subscribe to Shout a Buffalo Bills football podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, Google, and download it tonight when it comes out and you'll be able to hear the, the full interview. All right, guys, we got an awesome guest today. I'm going back to the UFC roots here, uh, dipping in with my friend, uh, Mr. John Anik, going to call a huge fight on Saturday. What is up, John? Thank you so much for joining me. Maddie, it's great to see you, man. I mean, you can lean on that UFC Rolodex anytime you need to. So uh, you know when the call comes in, I'm always taking your call, buddy. It's good to see you. No, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's a fun time to talk to you because – you know, you're plugged in all over the place, man. Like if, if anybody follows your Twitter feed, you know, it's a lot of UFC, it's a lot of fighting, but you know, you, you sprinkle in a lot of different sports and one in particular NFL football, you're a big new England Patriots fan. And for bills fans watching the podcast, I want to get you on from that perspective, just to talk about what it's like in this new world, five, six games in and second place in the division. Well, right. It's interesting. And I will say as a Boston sports fan, and I hope this doesn't come across in any arrogant way, but I have softened a little bit, right? I sit here talking to you. I am as big an NFL fan, I think at times as I am a Patriots fan. And because our teams for so long were the laughing stocks of these pro sports leagues, right? Dude, when I used to go to Schaefer Stadium and Sullivan Stadium and Foxborough Stadium, the Patriots were the laughing stock of the NFL. My record in Foxborough as a fan is probably 50 games below 500. So now that our teams have experienced some winning, I hope my fellow Patriots fans don't hear this part, but I would love to see Sean McDermott and the Buffalo Bills break through. I don't need them to win the Super Bowl necessarily, <laughs> but I am rooting, generally speaking, for starved fan bases in my elder years more than I ever thought I would. So I'm excited to see what Josh Allen can do. Obviously, I think Patriots fans were not blind to the fact that this year was going to be challenging. And I think once the Patrick Chung and Dante Hightower defection started to happen in the early COVID-19 days. It started to feel like the team was kind of thinning out and it was going to be really hard defensively to be as good as they were last year. And you knew probably they were going to take a step back offensively. So it has not been a good year. I am sitting on a future ticket for the Miami Dolphins at 11 to one to win the AFC East. But I think when all is said and done, it is going to be your Buffalo Bills. That is a 
a great ticket. And, and it's something that, you know, we talked about it a lot in the off season. I think people were sleeping on, you know, not only the, the talent that Miami's put together, but the culture that they're starting to build there. Brian Flores, I feel like he's going to be one of those lottery tickets, if you will, that comes out of the Patriots organization and builds, you know, a similar, his own version of, you know, a winning culture and you don't want to call it dynasty, but sustained success. And I think everything they're doing right now, even down to this Ryan Fitzpatrick thing, which is as a Bills fan, before I started covering the team, going back to my Ryan Fitzpatrick days, I love Fitz magic, man. Like the, you just root for that guy and to see what played out in the last couple of days, it's a little bit gut wrenching from a, as, as a person, from a human standpoint, but the way they've done it, let him kind of mentor the young fifth overall draft pick into a tag of Viola and the way they're kind of transitioning when things are good. It's interesting. I think that they're doing a kind of a good job of it. I think so too. And I'm all in on Brian Flores for sure. I was actually working for the sporting news radio affiliate in Boston when we had the rights to Harvard football, when Ryan Fitzpatrick was the quarterback. So I share that love for Fitzpatrick and I do feel bad for him in this situation, but I think you set up Brian Flores. Well, he's certainly a leader of men, certainly a guy that these players are going to get behind. And this isn't like coaching 12 guys, 15 guys in the NBA. You're trying to get 45 guys on game day, adult men, to buy into every damn word out of your mouth. And that has really been Belichick's key to success, that even guys like Christian Fourier back in the day, they don't like Belichick, but they'll take a bullet for the guy. They'll run through a wall for the guy. And the fact that Flores seems so convicted in this decision, when the football fan in me thinks, oh, I don't know, I'm glad Tua got a few reps, but Fitzpatrick is starting to turn the corner with that offense. I like the aggressiveness with which he made this move. I feel for Fitzmagic, obviously, but uh, I'm excited to see Tua. And, you know, no one's talking about this as the AFC least anymore. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, the Patriots eventually are going to rebuild and uh, the Jets are a lost cause, but it, it's a three-team race right now. I think it eventually it'll thin out. And I, I don't think the Pats are going to be a part of it, but we'll see. Yeah, I want to get your thoughts on that before we transition to 254. You know, Cam Newton, there was a lot said about when he signed in. You know, I think that that, that marriage made the most sense with the, the options that were out there. One thing that I mentioned was, man, he doesn't got a lot of runway here to get ready for the season. I mean, no preseason games, like to kind of learn an offense, which he is a brilliant football mind. So I didn't think it was going to have trouble, but just the, the lack of repetition. Sean McDermott talked about losing 500 plus in the spring. Just imagine that with a new quarterback and a new offense that just hit the ground running. I think this offense, as much as it's struggling right now with Cam Newton, it could be a completely different story late November, early December. They just got to kind of stay in the race, if, if you will. Yeah, you got to tread water. And again, I think you set it up well. And New England historically has finished stronger than it has started. So certainly I think that it stands to reason that this offense could bear fruit. I think there's a lot of film over the last couple weeks, particularly the Broncos game for Cam Newton and Belichick and Josh McDaniels to ingest and realize that uh, they got to make some change. Cam looked like he was in quicksand, taking way too many sacks. He just looked to be a step slow against Denver. But the whole playbook opens up when you have a guy who can make a play with his feet. And that's why I'm sure Bills fans get all excited when you have a guy like Josh Allen who can make plays and be mobile and do a lot of different things. Tom Brady's the greatest of all time, but that doesn't mean he is without limitations. So the Patriots fan in me that has seen a pocket passer who pocket passer who's immobile for 20 years, I was so excited to see Cam Newton, you know, don that Patriots jersey. And there have been some speed bumps, but uh I believe in Cam. I really do. I think if he can't get back to the MVP level, he can get close. But uh, I do think last week was a regression relative to what he had done leading up to that game. 
Habib Nurmagomedov is going to Ooh. defend the title once again. And this one is a banger. It's so funny. I go back to his fight against Connor, and that was the first big Connor fight that I was not with the UFC for. So watching it from Buffalo, New York on the big screen, while while fun time, it just didn't feel the same as you know, just being in that arena, experiencing those moments. There's nothing like it. I still maintain it. I've been in NFL stadiums, NBA stadiums. It doesn't matter. Um, but this fight in particular, Habib Nurmagomedov versus Justin Gagey. And Justin Gagey, in a lot of ways, shocked the world last time out. I, I, I think most people thought that while he is a competitive guy, a really good guy, like one of the best in the world, Tony Ferguson was a guy that, you know, that Habib fight was always there. So now that we're here, you know, what chances does, does Justin Gagey have in this fight? So he's about a plus 250, plus 270 underdog, depending on where you shop a price right now. And I think oftentimes when you don't have a blueprint for how to beat a guy, it becomes difficult. So Khabib Nurmagomedov has never lost. He's 28-0. So what is the blueprint? Well, there isn't one. So you have to find a guy who has outstanding defensive wrestling skills so that if he does get taken down or put on the fence, in theory, he can not only get up, but get up expeditiously. And obviously, you've got to have the striking advantage. So Justin Gaethje has those two things, but his takedown defense in mixed martial arts has gone largely untested. He's had to lean on it at times, but not in the way that he's going to, in theory, have to lean on it this weekend. But again, I, I, I'm a little bit of a broken record when it comes to Khabib because what most fighters who have trained with him or fought him tell me is that he feels like a light heavyweight, which is 50 pounds north of this weight class, as you well know. And Dustin Poirier said going into his fight with Khabib, I feel like the haze in the barn. I've done all the right work, but until, until I feel him in a mixed martial arts setting, I just don't know. And then he felt him up against the fence and he didn't quit, but he submitted. And I just feel like for Gaethje, that's the great unknown. What does Khabib feel like once he is on top of you? But if any fighter has the conditioning and the confidence and the defensive wrestling chops from his collegiate wrestling days to make this an interesting fight for Khabib, it's Gaethje. I mean, I would turn it around on you and say, if you needed to pick one lightweight in the world to beat Khabib Nurmagomedov, and you can send anybody in there, I'm probably landing on Justin Gaethje with respect to Tony Ferguson. So we'll see what he can do with the opportunity. He's certainly not going to be intimidated by the wrestling or anything else that happens in that cage. You know, you um, uh, tweeted out a picture or I think I put it on Instagram about, about Justin Gagey. You know, you've talked a lot this week and as have other people about, you know, the mindset and just the experience. I mean, a lot of UFC fans, you know, casual fans still getting to know Justin Gagey, right. a, lot of, a lot of his work done outside of the promotion. And so I think that, a casual might look at that and be like, well, this guy's only been in here for a couple of years. He's going up against the best effort. But what do you think has prepared him for this moment? And, and just being in those, that third, fourth, fifth round with a guy when you might have to go deep back into the drawing board and figure out a different approach to sustaining against him? It's a good question. I think the most useful part of the preparation and the lead up as far as his career is concerned were the back-to-back -back UFC losses to Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier. At that point in time, Justin Gaethje was 20 and 0. He had won a major title outside the UFC and had defended that belt five times. There was no denying his championship experience. If you wanted to knock his strength of schedule, you could. But then he came into the UFC and he lost two straight fights when he was 20 and 0. And that showed him that, you know what? I like being the most exciting fighter in the world 
but I want to be the best too. And, and I'm no longer the best and I need to fix that. So he went back to the drawing board with Trevor Whitman, who is as, as qualified a striking coach as we have in the game. And they made some changes and, and they made a few defensive adjustments. Um, I think Justin was having a little bit too much fun in there. And those really are his words, not mine. He feels like at times where he has let his guard down and let his focus down, that's when opponents have capitalized. So focus was really the buzzword coming out of Justin Gaethje in advance of this one. But I really do believe without those two losses, if he had been a 24-0 fighter fighting Habib Nurmagomedov this weekend, I wouldn't give him nearly as good a chance as I do now. People ask me all the time, like, my memories from the UFC and, like, what people were like, you know, behind the scenes, away from the camera. And whenever anybody has ever asked me about John Anik, I always tell them this story and you probably won't even, you know, remember it. Cause I don't even, I was, I was very new at the company, but Dana always threw Halloween parties in Vegas. Like that was like the, a big, you know, yearly tradition at the, at the uh, headquarters. Right. And I remember one of your last ones, I believe you were still living in Vegas, but I'm not sure, but it was the first one where I had experienced you were emceeing the Halloween right. party out in the, you know, on Sahara. And I'm right. like, this dude is, you know, one of the, one of the commentators for the UFC, like just, you know, elbow to elbow, the, the experience and like the, um, I don't know, just the down to earth nature of everybody inside the walls. There is what I always try to express to people that ask me what it was like, because it didn't matter who you were on the list, you know, whether it was Daniel Cormier coming in for a Christmas party, everybody just kind of just vibes, just gets, gets along. Yeah, no, I think you put it well. And there's no doubt that this UFC live production team and the other departments, it's all a well-oiled machine. It's a tight knit unit. We have spent at least in 2020, most of us more times with these people than our families. But yeah, man, I mean, I grew up cutting my television teeth at ESPN where you had to earn your stripes. Like I was putting my suit on in a toilet stall, putting makeup on my own face. Right. So like, I never liked the term on air talent. You know, I've always sort of just considered myself one of the guys and uh, you know, I've gotten a few breaks and, and have had some opportunities that I never thought would have been afforded me. But uh, I really enjoy working for this company. You know, Dana White is obviously an easy guy to want to break through a wall for, not unlike Bill Belichick. So it's been a fun ride. You know, I miss living in Vegas and emceeing those Halloween costume contests. I miss your hits with Forrest Griffin, of course, but uh, <laughs> I think you've aligned with a pretty good NFL outfit, if I'm not mistaken. So you're doing pretty well. No, it is. It has definitely been fun. Before I let you get out of here, um, and I do miss Vegas and I do miss the UFC for sure. Uh -huh. but to your point, it, it has been a great time these last two years. Let me know what else you're looking forward to on this event. Because I mean, everybody remembers the, the big KO a couple weeks ago. And I tell people all the time, don't just tune in for the main event because you're going to miss something. What, what do you got kind of uh, circled on your card here that you're really excited for? So we do have one fighter on the prelims. She's 23, year old, 23 years old. Her name is Miranda Maverick. Her UFC debut was delayed because she had detached retinas in both eyes. And Ooh. the Invicta medicals for her, Matt, did not pick it up. When she went to make her UFC debut, the UFC medicals did. She has since had surgery, clean bill of health. And simultaneously, while Miranda Maverick is studying for her PhD and working as a teacher's assistant in Abu Dhabi, right, doing Zoom classes while cutting weight as we speak. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. And here she is born in 1997, making her UFC debut. And uh, I think really it stands to reason that she could be a prospect worth keeping an eye on. She jumped up out of the room during the fighter meeting. And then obviously Walt Harris for me, this is the first time I have seen him since his daughter was murdered. And uh, he's just in a really 
good emotional place right now that he wasn't in when he returned against Alistair Overeem. I just think it was all too much. And every time he would walk into a restaurant, he would see them running the feature on ESPN on his late daughter, Anaya. And it was just too much for one man to, mm. to, to deal with. So I'm excited to see what Walt Harris now can do. He's, he's heard from so many different parents who have lost children who are so inspired by the fact that he's just willing to make the walk and compete. So I think you're going to get a real inspired effort out of Walt Harris. And dude, co-main event, Robert Whitaker and Jared Cannonier is obviously the fight that jumps off the card for most people here in Abu Dhabi. But first time since UFC 190 in 2015, that we have at least six fights or more on a pay-per-view. So uh, we don't have your boots on the ground, but I can assure you we are raring and ready to go. Forrest, uh, I texted him about six months ago and I get, I have this app because, you know, social media is so important for what we do. It kind of tells me stats and different things. It also tells me when people unfollow me. And so Forrest unfollowed me. So I texted him. I said, are you kidding me? We went through wars together building that thing. He's like, listen to me right now. I love you. I hate football. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to, I don't want to read about it. And I said, he said, you have a question, you text me, but I can't, I can't watch your things. And I said, fair enough. I respect that. And it's for us. You gotta, you gotta remember who you're dealing with. And I will say in his defense, when you first set it up that way, I was surprised to hear that he had unfollowed you, but I've had conversations with him about football and I don't understand how these guys either boycott the NFL, you know, Ray Longo, who's on my podcast every week. He is not watching the NFL. I don't understand how you can just no longer be an NFL fan. Forrest Griffin grew up in the state of Georgia rooting right. for the Falcons, but yeah, he's just not into it anymore. And uh, so much so that he would take your handsome face off of his timeline, man. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. You know, who's a big uh, Bills fan, Mark Henry, Ariel Hawani put me onto that. So we've started to connect, which we never did when I was in the UFC, but he's a huge Bills fan. He's rabid about it. So eventually I'm going to get him on the podcast. He's a little hesitant to show that side of, of him, but uh, yeah, great stuff from Mark Henry. The last time he cornered a UFC fighter on Fight Island, I believe it was, we were instructed to throw to him in the corner. And I said, all right, let's check in on the uh, Buffalo Bills fan, Mark Henry in the corner. So I brought it to broadcast and he said, now he's got the whole Bills mafia behind him. So uh, even the Patriots fan in me is not afraid to shout out Henry and the Bills when I get the opportunity. John Anik, the man, you will find him on the broadcast 2 p.m. stateside Eastern time this weekend, correct? 2 p.m. for the pay-per-view. You got it. There it is. So we'll watch that a little. Uh, it'll be like an NFL Sunday, you know, get, you know, get, have some late brunch, get, get, get ready for the fights. We'll watch Habib versus Justin Gagey. My friend, thank you so much for joining me. Anytime, my brother. Good to see you. There it is. John Anik predicting the Buffalo Bills to win the AFC East in 2020. It was a it was a really cool conversation Ryan because what I think is fun is getting the perception from guys in the business or girls in the business um who are a fan of maybe the Patriots that also see, you know, the league in, in the way that I think a lot of us do and to kind of get their perceptions of Buffalo and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think that was very interesting too and and he's realistic and that's the big thing. This is not the same Patriots team that has run rough shot over the division. Brady's gone. He mentioned the guys that opted out due to uh, COVID. So he, he's realistic about this season. He sees what the Bills have built over these last few years under the uh, McDermott-Bean regime. So I, I enjoyed that clip. So again, like Matt said, make sure you head over to one of these podcast sites, uh, rate, subscribe, review, and check out that interview in full. 
And I told everybody I would give my big my big predictions for the fight. So the main event is obviously Habib Nurmagomedov versus Justin Gagey. And this is, you know, if there's any UFC fans in here, this is one of those dream fights because it's stylistically so appealing. You got the, you know, grappler and Habib versus the crazy kickboxing striker in Justin Gagey, who's willing to take chances with his with his striking and you know, I think he's got the gas take and the wrestling to really pose a real problem. But I can't, I can't pick against the undefeated champ. I mean, the way Habib handled Connor in their last fight and some of the other fights over the course of his career, he's so dominant. And I know you're going to be watching this fight on on, on Saturday at two o'clock, Ryan. Who are you picking? I'm actually going with Habib as well. I think he's going to win this fight. Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm an old man. I'm usually in bed by like 11 p.m. I'm going to actually stay up for this one. I'm going to watch this pay-per-view. I'm intrigued enough to sit up and, and stay up and watch this, which is, like I said, no small feat at this point in my life. I like my sleep. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this overall card, though. For more UFC talk, download the podcast, listen to my conversation with John Anik. It was a great one. Let's move on here. And there's a couple of things I want to get to before we talk about the Jets. And because listen, this is a weird game this week. You know, I, I feel like the, you know, at least within the online community, it's, you know, the, the passion is dialed back a little bit. It's, it's tough to get up for an undefeated team talking to the bills this week. That's been one of the big storylines and we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit in a little while, but there's a lot happening around this team right now. You know, big, big story this week, Quentin Spain uh, was released by the bills unceremoniously on Wednesday. This is a guy that started 16 games in a playoff game last year in his entirety of his Bills career. That is 16, 17, 18 regular season starts. One playoff start has not allowed a single sack lost his job. I mean, two games into the season, he was benched Um, from the conversations I've had. And it's nothing that I can really report to um, specifically or in depth. Uh, You know, you don't want to burn people that you're talking with, but he just didn't have the best attitude. And Brandon Bean said that, said as much. He said he, from his, where he sat, he thought that Quentin Spain, you know, thought he should have a different role than the role that the coaching staff kind of laid out for him. And this is a, this is a team that, and a coaching staff, especially you are, it's, it's a evolving window of evaluation. This is not something where you get evaluated at the beginning of the season. And then that changes and, you know, you're locked into a, a roster spot. You have to continually earn that. And, you know, you look across this roster and there may be some other guys that, you know, fans probably sitting back like, well, is he earning it? Is he earning it? Sometimes you don't have anywhere else to go in certain spots. But, you know, we saw what the move that they made with Trent Murphy, which I think for the line of questioning that Sean McDermott was going to have to deal with this week following the move of Trent Murphy to make that move tells you that they really do believe in that philosophy. And with Spain, you know, let's be honest. I think that he, his play so far this season left a little bit to be desired. And they have John Feliciano kind of, uh, you know, in their back pocket here. Hopefully he can return in the next couple of weeks and, and they go from there. I don't think it's ideal timing, though, with Cody Ford out uh, week to week right now with the knee injury. Yeah, the, the timing could not be any worse right now. Like you said, Ford's week to week, but you nailed it. Brendan Bean even came out yesterday and he said, you know, it seems like he was unhappy with with the role. He felt like he should be starting at this point. Um, he he was pretty solid last year, and in, in, like you mentioned, not so much this year. But this entire offensive line, I, I feel, has struggled. You know, Dean Dawkins has been solid. Mitch Morris has been solid, but the, the two guards, especially, has have been in flux all year in terms of their play, up and down, up and down. 
Uh, and, and now with Ford out, you would have thought, well, here's an opportunity for Spain, but Spain probably just didn't want to be here anymore. And, and the Bills honored that by releasing him, saying, you know, go find your own way. And, and now it's going to be really interesting because uh, if Ford does not play, which it's trending in that direction, it's going to be Ike Butker or Ike Bucker. Um, he, he's a guy that this team really likes. They've kept him on the roster a few years in a row now where he's kind of flown under the radar through the offseason. Uh, in terms of what we know about him. So this is a huge opportunity because he, if he can come in and he can play well, he can really have that top rotation guy on the inside or at the guard position kind of locked down if he plays well, because like you said, you know, Ford will eventually be back. They want to, ha- I, I feel like they want to have him at left guard, personally speaking. And then obviously when Feliciano comes back, I think the right guard spot is his. And, you know, that's no knock on Brian Winters or anything like that. It's just I think the Bills like what Feliciano brings to this offensive line, not just from a play perspective because he was very good last year up until late in the year when he was dealing with a little bit of an injury. Um, But they also like what he brings from the firing up his teammates, getting guys going, having that Josh Allen-like attitude persona on the field. The the swag, I guess, might be the, the, the best term there. Uh, he brings something to this offense, not just from his play perspective. So things could be looking up here pretty soon. You get Feliciano back. Bucker has a great opportunity. So I'm intrigued to see how this line looks on Sunday. Yeah, and Feliciano, Josh talked about it. Uh, I asked him about Feliciano on Wednesday, and he said he's a guy that everybody in the locker room loves. Talked about you know his mentality on the field, and that's something that you know I've kind of observed to be missing is that attitude you know with this group. Um, so I think getting him back in the mix is huge. I don't think Brian Winters has been as good as you probably hoped when you made that signing and that addition. But I think to your point is, I think that was the plan long-term. You look at the course of the next two months of the season, it's Ford at left guard. You know, you hope that not, even if you're not thrilled with what he looks like in the first couple games there, you're hoping that he can kind of develop over the course of the season and, you know, all of those prognostications of where he trended better, you know, at the next level start to come into fruition. And then Feliciano back at right guard. And then you have some, you know, you have some moving parts with guys like Ryan Bates, Ike Bucker, Ty Insecki, who still is there as your swing tackle. So, um, no, I think that, um, you know, it's a very interesting move just because it is admitting failure in a way, you know, uh, you go out and you give a guy a three-year deal you, you you talk about wanting the right kind of guy, the right kind of player to add into your room and then to have it kind of swerve like that. But I think it's important to be able to recognize those mistakes when they are made or when they develop and rectify them immediately. I think that Brandon's done a good job of that. You go back to Calvin Benjamin. He gave him an opportunity as soon as that beard completely off road. And it took a little while for it to veer completely off the road. When it eventually did, he made a change. Yeah. Like you said, if you keep someone around too long, that can have a trickle-down effect into your locker room with the attitude of other players. Um, That's a valid point. That's a great point. And and we don't know what happened behind the scenes there with Spain, other than that he was unhappy about his role. But cut ties if you have to. It's not ideal. The three-year, $15 million everyone thought was a a great bargain at that time. Uh, It doesn't look so hot now that he's uh, out there on the free agent market. All right, so let's transition here to the Jets. I'm going to play a little um, soundbite, uh, courtesy of SNY, uh, talking to Sam Darnold today, and then we'll. I want to discuss a little bit with that. You know, personally, um, you know, all the speculation about your future here. 
Yeah, I mean, we're just worried about getting a win. You know, you gotta, we got to worry about this week in, in Buffalo. They're a really good team. So um, we're worried about this week. And, um, you know, that's all we're worried about right now. You heard any of it? What's that? Sorry, I apologize. Have you have you heard any of this speculation, uh, you know, social media and so forth about Trevor? Yeah, you know, I mean, I have social media. I've seen some of the things, but um, yeah, we, we got a game to win this week, and that's all we're worried about. How do you do that, Sam? How do you just block out stuff like that when I'm sure when you got here, you thought, you know, you guys are going to just keep climbing? Yeah, I mean, for me, that's out of my control. You know, I'm, I'm here to, you know, I'm here to do my best and help this team win games. You know, that's all I can do. And, um, you know, with that, it's preparing every single day as hard as I can and going out to practice and trying to have the best practice I can. Um, you know, that's. Things have gone really south there. And, you know, whether or not you're, you know, I've seen this from a lot of Bills fans and just fans in general on social media today. It's like there's this feeling of you know, angst watching that because you feel for young guys that come into the league that are kind of thrown into circumstances like Sam was thrown into in New York. And you kind of wonder what it would be like. Now, of course, if you're a Bills fan, I mean, I don't think you're crying about it. I mean, you, you never want the Jets to be good if you're a Bills fan. I get that. But you can just see it almost. You respect the professionalism, but you could see the toll that I think that this maybe has taken on him. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? what's funny is you, you mentioned young. Emphasis on young. He's the same age as Joe Burrow in Cincinnati. And this is, you know, year three for this guy. And the Jets have done him absolutely no favors. This offensive line, yeah, they added a lot of parts in the offseason. Um, but, again, it, it's like when you can get the discount parts instead of the good parts. And you're just going to try to get by with those. That's what they did on the offensive line. It's not a good offensive line. The Bills go out and get Stefan Diggs. They already had John Brown. They already had Cole Beasley. The Jets go out and get Brashad Perriman, and they draft Denzel Mims. And Denzel Mims could develop into a really good wide receiver. And Perriman did come on last year at the end of the year, uh, but it's not the same. Le'Veon Bell, they, they've gotten rid of that whole move didn't uh, work out, but now he's left with Frank Gore and LaMichael Pirine. There's not a lot of talent around this guy. And I'm going to tell you right now, I, you know, maybe they will win the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes and, and maybe he will be as good as everyone says and he'll turn this franchise around. But some team is going to get a very good quarterback in Sam Darnold, whether it's uh, a Pittsburgh Steelers, whether it's an Indianapolis Colts, someone that has an older quarterback there now and someone that they can kind of pass that torch to. Get him in an organization that is not dysfunctional and I think this guy can produce. So, yeah, you, you feel for a guy like that. He sees all the pictures out there of Trevor Lawrence with the Jets jersey on. I'm sure he reads the comments from Jets fans. Uh, this team, you know, you look around the league at all the coaching changes that have already happened, and Adam Gase is just kind of sitting there, and Greg Williams is just sitting there. It, it's apparent that they're they're looking to land that number one pick. You don't keep Adam Gase around after getting, you know, destroyed in Miami and, and just embarrassed all year for that matter. They're looking ahead to 2021 at this point, and that does nothing for Sam Darnold either. No favors whatsoever. You know, this is um, 
I'd say it's like a trap game the, going up against a, a winless team like this that you know might be galvanized by that fact. But this is a team that lacks leadership. This is a team that lacks talent. I mean, up and down its roster. You go down and look at all of the the stat polls from the media guide. You know, 32nd in the league in points scored, 29th in the league in points allowed, uh, 23rd in the league in sacks, 30th in average uh, starting field position, 32nd dead last and third down conversion percentage, 32nd in the red zone, 30th in penalties. I mean, this is just a bad football team from top to bottom. And what's funny about that is, you know, I remember going back to the offseason and like when people were starting to size these rosters up and I heard a lot of people talking about the offensive line additions that they made. And I think we both said it on this show. I mean, we sat back and like, not a, they didn't do a whole lot. Uh, they didn't add a whole lot of players that I thought were difference makers. And we're seeing that now uh, you, you see that, you know, like you mentioned, Perriman added to the mix as their big splash guy. When he's on an island, he's just not as effective. Of course, he's going to put up the kind of numbers that he put up last year, uh, playing alongside Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. And I know that he had a nice little run there uh, when they were hurt, but that was a very truncated, shortened period of time. It's tough to base everything on it. You go to two years ago with the you know the Bills model, just using it as an example because they're 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 close together there. John Brown, proven success in this league. Cole Beasley, proven success in this league. That's the way that you build a roster. If you're going to spend money, you want to bring in guys that have done things before. And all the guys that they brought in now, I will say, they they monkeyed around with things, you know, at the beginning of the season. Trading Jamal Adams, I think that that was really poorly timed. Now, they got a lot of assets, so they're very set up for the future. But I'm talking about for this year and for Sam Darnold, they didn't do a lot of things to help him out. And, you know, you look at guys like, you know, CJ Mosley opting out of the season. We remember him from the opener last year. He was a Mm. huge addition. He was a, he's a game changing type of player. And just think about what, what would adding a guy like CJ Mosley do to the bills defense, you know, a guy like that, that is just at that second level that, you know, just is, um, you know, reliable. So I think that this is a bad football team from top to bottom. My point is the storyline, is this a, a trap game? I don't necessarily think it is just because I don't think they're very good. Uh, I agree with that. Although I'll, I'll go out on the record and say Phil Sims predicted the Jets would win this weekend on Inside the NFL this week. He went Look out there and Phil said, Sims. Oh, the Jets are going to get their first win of the season. You know, anything can happen in the NFL. I don't want to write any team off, nor do you. But even if Sam Darnold is back this week, which he's trending in that direction, Jamison Crowder, his best wide receiver, probably isn't going to play. He has some kind of groin injury. He's been kind of held out. Uh, yeah, you're getting today. Yep. Um, Denzel Mims is looking like he will, he could play his first game, but this is a guy that's had very limited time with the, the team in terms of chemistry with Darnold and, and the offense as a whole. Perriman's Perriman. Herndon has not lived up to expectations at tight end. Like you said, the talent from top to bottom just really isn't there. So I would be stunned if the Bills do lose this game. And I, I almost can't call it a trap game because this is a team coming off of two losses that I think want to kind of quiet some people on the outside, uh, you know, make them eat their words a little bit. And, and there's no better opportunity than against this New York Jets team. Let's talk, let's transition to the defense a little bit here and talk about what, you know, the Jets offense is going to be facing because, you know, getting right is something that, you know, the, all these guys have talked about this week. You know, Micah High today. I thought was, you know, 
he didn't mix words. He didn't uh, make any excuses. He just said they looked at the tape and they're just not executing right now. And, you know, he talked around it a little bit, but I do think, and I don't want to provide any excuses for them, but this is a real thing. Having guys in and out of the lineup, dealing with all of this adversity, you know, Trey White landing on the uh, injury report again today, along with uh, Josh Norman. These guys are banged up. This is a different kind of season. They're, they're, they're trying to do everything they can to get to game day. And I think when you have that kind of thing, there's been a lot of stability on the offense outside of John Brown the last couple of weeks. And so I think that it's been easier for them to kind of um, have that continuity and have that, um, you know, comfort level. But this week, I mean, you still have Matt Milano up in the air. Now you have your both two starting cornerbacks who are dealing with an issue, a defensive line that just is trying to figure out their roles. That's a big thing that's happening right now. Justin Zimmer comes on, has a really nice day on, on, on Monday. But where is his role? Does he fit as, you know, you know, the, I think it was, I was talking to Joe Biscalia, go check out his story today. We we're talking about it at practice today. He said that he charted the defensive line snaps um, on Monday night and Ed Oliver played 70% of his snaps somewhere around that number at nose tackle. Hmm. To me, that is just eye popping because that's my impression was that that's not what they brought him here. For. And I remember specifically Brandon Bean talking about, you know, the fact that Houston played him out of position his last year there. And that's something that they weren't looking to do here, but they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because you look around and without Harrison Phillips in the lineup last week, I'd imagine he'll be back this week. Quentin Jefferson hasn't done a good job at that one tech spot and Vernon Butler's only playing how many snaps still kind of making his own way back from the hamstring injury. So yeah, I'm seeing the comments starting to, to, to pop here, Ryan, there's, the Bills should maybe start entertaining a trade. Uh, I think da uh, Dalvin Tomlinson right now is playing. I just saw somebody tweet about him making a play on Thursday Night Football. I think we're we're in that realm now where a, a deal makes a lot of sense to add some. I think a one technique, a good one technique, even a, like a baseline level good one technique changes everything for Oliver, the edge guys, and the linebackers. Yeah, and there's a few good ones out there. And I know that uh, we put a piece out there on Delvin Tomlinson and a lot of Bills fans reacted positively to it. Thank you for checking it out, first and foremost. Um, he's a guy that makes a ton of sense, the relationship there with Bean and Gettleman. Uh, and, and you look around the league, you look at a guy like Yannick Ndakwe. He gets traded today for a three and a five. If, if that's all a guy like Yannick is getting, a guy like Tomlinson is not going to get more than a day three pick. And I know the Bills love their draft picks, but you're not going to get – you're looking at this year. You're looking at 2020. Even if it's just a rental for the season, get a guy like that in here that can change your defense. If you get a, a one technique, a guy that's built to play that role, it makes life so much easier for Ed Oliver. It makes life so much easier for Addison and Hughes. And the linebackers, you know – we have fans have kind of said, why do we have Star Latule around here for years? He, he never shows up on the stat sheet. He did his job, just like Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott said. Oh, it doesn't show up in the stat sheet. They weren't lying. He took on those, those offensive linemen, and guess what? He made life easier for Tremaine Edmonds and Matt Milano. He made life easier for the linemen around him. So if you get a Tomlinson in here, if you get a, a spoiler alert, a, a Tim Settle, a guy that I'm going to be writing about here soon too, from the Washington football team. I, uh, another one technique that I think could really be a difference maker for this team. That makes things so much easier. And one more thing. I'm on a little rant right now. Ed Oliver. Get after it. I'll, I'll mute myself. 
stop bashing Ed Oliver on social media. I've seen so many people say, is Ed Oliver a bust? What's going on with Ed Oliver? I rewatched that Chiefs game as ugly as it was, and I did not see, minus Justin Zimmer, any one player hustle more than Ed Oliver. Ed Oliver was everywhere. He's playing out of place. He's doing everything in his power to make plays. He played a pretty good game of football, in my opinion. So, it, you know, I get it. He's not showing up on the stat sheet, quote, unquote. That's the that's what a lot of fans do at the end of the game. Well, he doesn't have any pressures. He doesn't have this. I watched that game. He played a good game. He was backing some guys up, offensive linemen up, where a lot of the linemen were having trouble with that. For as good as Justin Zimmer was, and I praised him right after the game, he got pushed back a few times very noticeably in that game. Ed Oliver was everywhere in that game. He's doing his one eleventh, but like Matt, like Micah Hyde said, they're not executing as a unit. And until they do, you're not going to see any overall unit or any the defense as a whole shine. They need to start playing together and rant. <laughs> let's let's cool you off a little bit, my friend. You were you were on fire there. I loved it. You know you know what the cliche of the day today I heard the last two days. Um, hair on fire. It, I think it was Jerry Hughes that said it uh, when talking about what the Bills have to do to be better on defense. He was talking about we have to just be out there like our hair is on fire. And I think Micah said it too about Matt Milano. So uh, you just you were just out here. You were listening. You were you were you were in the you were in the team meetings, Ryan. You you're you're out here with your hair <laughs> on fire. So good stuff. All right, let's let's uh, we're gonna wrap this up here shortly. Uh, we're not gonna go too in depth here. That's why I combine the. The, the podcast uh, this week um, it, with a pre little short preview here and then the uh, Tim Graham uh, episode. And don't forget, head over to the audio versions for uh, my full interview with John Anik. You're not going to want to miss it. It's a really good, uh, it's a really good one. Even if you're not an MMA fan, John's a, John's a great guy. Uh, gracious with his time. Let's get into our prediction here. Uh, any final thoughts in this game? Go. Final thoughts, if the Bills want to show that they are a legitimate AFC East contender and a legitimate AFC contender, injuries aside, you need to put away this Jets team and put them away convincingly. I, I want to see them uh, exceed that point spread. I want to see them win by 20-plus points and really put away a bad team. You have to do that. You have to get back on the right track. So, you know, they're going to be missing some weapons on both sides. This is not the healthy team that we saw one year ago. Bills 40, 40, Bills 40, Jets 13. Blowout city. All right, here's a bold prediction for you. I feel like I got to bring some type of fire here uh, after Ryan has just been delivering the goods. Devin Singletary is a man of very few words, and we got a chance to talk to him this week, and you can just feel the frustration emanating off of him as he was answering questions about what's going on with the run game. So I think that you are going to have a very angry offensive line out in front of him, open up big holes. Devin Singletary breaks a hundred yards for the first time this season. The bills win in convincing fashion, 28 to 10. I know the score is probably not going to be uh, what everybody's hoping for because uh, everybody wants an offensive assault, but I think they do a lot of what the Kansas city chiefs did th uh, this past Monday. They control the clock with their run being run game they get back to their fundamentals they get back to their basics and you know josh allen still has himself a nice day against a really bad jets secondary i mean really a bad jets defense this is a bad jets football team this game shouldn't be close 
Sunday, one o'clock. I'm so glad to be back at one o'clock on Sunday. Uh, New Jersey, uh, the New Jersey Jets, the Buffalo Bills. We'll watch it and we'll all uh, enjoy the game. For Ryan Talbot, I'm Matt Perino. Uh, please head over to the audio platforms. Like I said, rate, review, subscribe. We really appreciate you. And we will see you after the game. Take care, everybody. Ready for football? With every game a home game, Tops is ready for you with its TV a day giveaway. For six weeks, every day you shop is a new chance to win a massive 70-inch 4K TV. Shop Tops for the best deals in town, in-store, or online to win.